Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the episode 59 um, for August 7th, 2020. Um, just a quick apology to start off with. I didn't realize that episode 58 was actually scheduled to air on uh, Saturday. I was a little shocked myself when I saw that. I don't know why. I, uh, I think I misscheduled something. So I apologize if you're waiting for the episode on Friday and it came out on Saturday. Um, my my bad. Um, today's episode is a learning medley on... Chinese tech and also U.S. big tech, so it's kind of a big tech companies' uh, learnings. Uh, mainly because I think it's it's one of those things where you hear about it a lot, um, constantly. At least for me, but I realize that I don't really know enough about it. So, although most of my note learnings, let's say if it was a millimeter a millimeter deep, so not very deep, just very shallow. I wanted to go a little deeper, maybe go go a couple centimeters deeper, just still on that wide lens and that's kind of what happened unintentionally i might add um something i talked about in my newsletter but i reached i discovered the tech buzz china podcast on um friday and it yeah like that's kind of what my entire uh, a chunk of my day was i think i listened to some 20 i think a total of some 20 between 20 to 30 episodes um that they have some 50 60 episodes so i just did a whole marathon um trying to just listen to all the subjects and areas that were interesting for me i kind of did the pick and choose kind of situation just because my interest um was more so in the bigger tech companies of tencent alibaba meituan dmping and ByteDance. those four kind of stuck out to me as the companies i want to learn more about um just because i don't really know much about them and so that's kind of much of what I'll talk about today. Just kind of, once again, it's me It's me ranting my own learning so that I can cement them into my own brain and hoping that maybe you'll get something out of it too. And then um, I also read an article by Ben Thompson from Stratechery on the, it's titled Antitrust Politics, and it's kind of a comprehensive overview on the Congress hearings um, with, with the big, uh, what's that, the big four tech CEOs from Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Weird how it wasn't the big five. I really thought Microsoft should have been part of it, but once again, it's it's weird. Maybe that's why Microsoft is trying to buy TikTok, right? Because Satya wants to be invited to the next hearing. But regardless, those would be kind of the two big topics I talk about. Um, so to start off with this, much of the chi- this China big tech learning came from the podcast called Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily. So I really highly recommend you go and check them out. Um, they have a much more comprehensive overview, and the two hosts are great. They um, they both used to work in mainland China, especially in the tech scene, and so they have also like a cultural lens and overview. And also they know people that work there, and they've also worked with these big uh, Chinese tech companies. So it's definitely I think um, been very insightful and helpful for me as an outsider and also someone who's not Chinese too get an insight into this landscape because although I have friends from Shanghai and Beijing, they 
and I hear stuff from them, it's still different. Um, when I actually listen to people who actually were in the industry and they when their full-time job is actually looking at the business landscape and also showing the, I think, development over time um, as the Chinese economy rapidly grew. So once again, the learnings will kind of be be focused on the big four tech companies, Tencent, Baba, Meituan, Dianping, and ByteDance. So to start off with, I think, um, and I'm just going to rip off, or not rip off, but just go through all the th- interesting tidbits that I've written down and all the notes are once again, and the links to the specific podcasts are on the show notes at OMV Ventures. So definitely check it out. I want to give them all the credit for all the work that they do. And I'm just someone who's trying to learn from what they do. So um, what I didn't know is that ByteDance, which is more famously known as the parent of TikTok, um, which is an app that I don't use, but I hear it's a big thing among young people. And it's that short, um, with a short video clip, it's kind of like even shorter than Snapchat, but very similar to Snapchat. But something I didn't know is that ByteDance bought Musical.ly. Musical.ly is another app that I never used, but once again, I always have friends who are more in tune with the trends of new products. And I remember hearing about that and my friends explaining to me how it's something where people just sing music and other people will like try to, I think, sing along with them. And I thought it was very, I personally thought it was very silly, but it was a big thing. Turns out TikTok bought it. And in one way, I think TikTok became kind of the successor of Musical.ly. In China, the TikTok version is called Douyin. And oh, once again, my Chinese pronunciation will probably be extremely awful. I'm just trying to uh, copy what the podcast host from Tech Plus China said. And I'll try to imitate the best I can. So I apologize if, you have, if we have a Chinese listener who's uh, upset at my pronunciation. Um, please forgive me. So Douyin is the Chinese TikTok, and they are in competition with another one called Kuaishou, I believe. Um, Kuaishou is backed by Tencent, whereas Douyin is obviously owned by ByteDance. Kuaishou, I think, was the one that started earlier than Douyin, though. And in many ways, they started this um, trend of live streaming short-form video in China. And they started by actually targeting Tier 3 plus cities. So in China... It, I believe that they they kind of categorize these mega cities that they have where, you know, I think, what is it, Shanghai? I'm going to check right now because I don't want to be wrong as I look on my computer. So Shanghai population. Let's see. Shanghai population is 27 million. So you have a city in China that has 27 million people. I mean... I think Canada's population is something like 35 million or 40 million. So you have one city that's practically equal to the country that I live in, in many aspects. So China has a lot of these cities, though. And so these massive cities are categorized by tiers, I believe. And so there's tier one, tier two cities. They kind of make up more of like what you would typically consider the metropolitan cities. But China has so many of them that they can't even call them tiers. And so Kuaishou targeted cities that are tier three plus cities. So there's all these massive other cities or a massive number of cities that are all very small and also in the rural villages. Many of them might also not be as advanced um, technologically. And I hear the disparity is massive. But Kuaishou started by targeting um, these, quote-unquote, more poorer um, from an economical standpoint cities. And it seems like it's mainly in the northern area. And this was kind of looked upon negatively by the more wealthier individuals in the south of China, where many of these tier one, tier two cities are based out of. And in there's 
what was interesting is that there exists this kind of cultural, um, I don't know if it's prejudice, but uh, stereotype where people in the South who are apparently considered more the wealthier, posh and educated, you know, that's where like Shanghai, Shenzhen and all these big technologically driven cities are, um, are located. And like the people there don't want to use an app like Show where they believe it's more the, you know, lower class, um, you know, poor people are are using and so there's kind of this kind of not necessarily a caste system but still they don't want to be associated with them you know it's like they're them we are us and we're kind of we should have our own thing and it seems like that's what douyin um targeted and so douyin um from ByteDance was created for the people in the south and now they had their own platform that they could actually use without having to um succumb to quote-unquote stooping down to um the app that was targeting more of the poorer people it reminds me of what my when i actually talk individual in independently with friends who are mainly from beijing versus friends from shanghai and like my beijing friends would tell me like yeah there's a stereotype that um they believe shanghai shanghainese people are more dainty and kind of more quote-unquote feminine and kind of weaker compared to the more tougher uh people in the north where kind of beijing is kind of i guess more associated with and people in Shanghai will tell me, like, yeah, like people in Beijing are kind of crass and unsophisticated and um, they're kind of more rude, whereas people in Shanghai are uh, more civilized, for example. So it's just funny seeing that um, dynamic because even when I think about, um, like, in South Korea, we have that with um, various cities as well. But I, I also think about, hmm, in Canada, we have definitely an east-west, uh, div- not a divide, but there is a differentiation. Like, every time I meet, fellow Vancouverites in Toronto, we always kind of joke about how people in the East are always um, more kind of impatient in many ways. And, you know, the hustle is kind of not seen as very positively. It's kind of more of a very, um, some would say it's, uh, it's kind of like a snake oil salesman kind of vibe where you're just constantly being hustled in the negative sense. Whereas when I talk to my Toronto, like Toronto friends who look at like Vancouver they might visit they'll say like oh people they're so lazy they don't work as hard and that's also very funny when I um, talk to people who work in tech companies between Vancouver and Toronto and they kind of have a very similar vibe too where people in Vancouver might think people in Toronto are way too rushed impatient um, and also kind of possibly unethical in many ways and people in Toronto look at people in Vancouver saying they have no desire to work hard and that's why they're not going to do as well as us etc so that's what's cool to see kind of that cultural nuance Going back to the businesses, um, also it turns out ByteDance also owns Toutiao, which is China's apparently number one news site, which is really interesting to see how like, they're directly owning content and journalism. It's kind of like how if Facebook owned the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, I mean, that would cause an up- uproar. In many ways, they are already displaced the news channels. Um, but in in China, like they're, ByteDance literally owns a news site and a social media platform, which is pretty interesting, that that dynamic. I don't know how that would float here um, in the North Americas. And then in terms of the capital strategy between Tencent and Alibaba, this is something I found interesting. Um, My initial interest in Tencent was piqued because I learned that they are the 40% owner of Epic Games, which owns Fortnite. Um, Once again, I don't play any, any particular video games, but... I know these are big deals, and it also turns out Tencent is 100% owner of, I believe, Riot Games, which owns League of Legends, and I was like, hmm, this is pretty interesting, like, they continuously invest in all these companies, I know they have also 
an investment um, partnership with Spotify. They also invest in C Limited uh, in down in uh, Singapore and Southeast Asia. And it turns out that's kind of Tencent's um, strategy. They apparently are known to take minority stakes in companies, whereas Alibaba does the opposite, and they actually choose out to um, acquire and integrate a company. And apparently the same goes for Alibaba and ByteDance, where they are apparently known to have a lot more data scientists, um, and it's also because they kind of have more of an open, not necessarily an open source, but more of an openly integrated uh, company where all the various um, products are integrated within and everyone kind of works cohesively together and so all the data is also shared cross-platform um, for them to analyze and better optimize whereas apparently for Tencent there's kind of more of an independent structure where in many in some could say it's decentralized it seems where <clears throat> various units operate independently from each other and that's kind of how um, Tencent was able to grow out like their gaming platform and how WeChat apparently formed as well. So the kind of quote-unquote leader of the Tencent gaming platform, Mark Ren, um, who I found to be a very fascinating individual who is this very risk-seeking engineer who always took the unconventional career path. I think he like joined Alibaba when it was not very popular to do so or even that might have Baidu as well. And he even took on this whole gaming challenge, although he's not really passionate about gaming, but just because it was, it seemed like it was very unpopular at the time. And the same thing with WeChat's founder, Alan Zhang, who apparently was running his own company. Uh, I think it was called Foxmail. It's like an email company, and it didn't do so well. And then it was kind of bought out by Tencent, and then he ended up joining Tencent um, and created WeChat kind of as like a separate unit. So he was already, already working on some messaging platform for Tencent, and then apparently he was inspired by Kick Messenger, based out in Canada. Um, to create this kind of holistic messenger app that kind of integrates every part of your life. And that's how WeChat was born. And apparently WeChat too was kind of under scrutiny, but it was kind of left alone to do its own thing where, cause WeChat wasn't doing so well in the beginning. And so everyone was like, oh, why are you investing in this messaging um, product? But eventually it did well. And I think what was interesting is how Alan Zhang's approach to products and design is um, somewhat kind of very influenced by like a very Steve Jobs point of view, just, a focus on design and also apparently in China people refer to Alan Zhang as kind of like a philosopher just in how he approaches products and just the vision he has for WeChat where he wants to create a product that just makes um, the user's life just much better and I think another telling sign was how he apparently continued to avoid growth hacking and he very dislikes the idea of growth hacking. Um, he believes products should focus on organic traffic growth and only when you have significant organic traffic growth um, that's when you have an idea indication that this product is actually valuable instead of trying to leverage Tencent's actual um, existing user base to just immediately use a product without any indication that it's actually valuable. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And it also kind of speaks to the kind of culture that Tencent has and how it can actually create these independent um, products to actually form organically. In many ways, I actually think that Tencent's way of investing in minority stakes is also possibly a way to acquire talent in some ways. Um, because it seems like people from within kind of build these products out and they end up becoming these kind of independent spokespeople and even considered celebrities in China. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that, I, I don't know, maybe it's just the podcast uh, host who kind of highlighted this. And so my view is now biased to believe that Tencent has this ability to do that uh, because obviously Alibaba has you know, Taobao, Tmall, Alipay, and Ant Financial and all these various entities that I mean, obviously were created by other people inside the company as well but 
it doesn't seem like they have the same kind of leadership clout where individual leaders who were in charge of specific products kind of rise out as quote-unquote celebrity status it's generally just jack ma at alibaba kind of situation i think and i'm kind of all over the place right now <laughs> as because i realized that even my note taking was not as uh, succinct but on on the topic of i think um since i talked about wechat talked about um the gaming division which i thought was pretty interesting um and yeah the cultural differences i thought i'd talk about ant financial so because i think the ipo of ant financial has been kind of a hot thing lately um at least in the financial news people are expecting this to be like a massive ipo of a 200 billion dollar company or something so yeah like I, I decided to think about or learn about what is ant financial why is it such a big deal so ant financial is the financial arm of alibaba alibaba owns about 33 percent of it and apparently there's a bit of a drama there where so softbank and yahoo were the big um equity owners of alibaba and there's some suspicion that jack ma wanted to um pull the external investor control out of the core engine and possibly the crown jewel of alibaba which is ant financial and created a completely separate legal entity that would not be controlled by softbank and yahoo and i apparently this was a huge um drama and like a big deal amongst like the shareholders at the time and it kind of makes you wonder um yeah if this kind of stuff flies um how much like minority like just western investors or actually even softbank's japanese so any non-chinese investors really um the kind of risk you bear where yeah what if you invested in you know and financial and then they just without the investors knowing created a separate legal entity that is kind of independent from and financial that actually hold, holds um like alipay for example like that would be a big shocker um it seems like that's kind of what happened um, with Alibaba, and so it once again kind of look shows you possible risks of corporate governance that definitely do exist. Um, and it may be that because Western or just non-Chinese investors don't have you know boots on the ground and just a dark exposure to what's happening, that they would just miss things, even though it's very obvious to the Chinese people as well. But anyhow, and financial it seems like has three main business units. They have Alipay, which is the more obvious one. It's you know. It's the it's your bank on your phone kind of situation where you just pay for everything with um, your phone. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. It's kind of like Apple Pay, but instead of using a credit card, I believe you just actually link your bank account to um, the app. And in many ways, apparently, this getting credit in China is extremely difficult. Like to even get like a credit card, for example, like you have to get um, according to one of the the hosts at the podcast. Apparently, when she had to get a credit card um, in China, like she had to get some kind of letter from the HR department that confirms her title, her salary, her position, and all that. And it's a very difficult process to actually get credit. And maybe that actually speaks to um, why the Chinese economy, at least um, in the beginning, not so much now, I think, um, or culturally, was very kind of um, a non credit economy. Like people didn't. Um, let's say use debt as much like that's kind of the I don't know the cultural narrative that's presented at least when I look at the financial media they continue to talk about the Chinese has a very savings culture very against credit and maybe it's because credit is so hard to get and so maybe that's why they become a savings oriented culture um, because right now China as an economy has a lot of debt uh, compared to back in the first 
like the 08 financial crisis when you know the economy didn't have as much credit so i'm just i'm just riffing on ideas here and just thinking about this through um and so in many ways alibaba and tencent have made it possibly easier for people to have credit um once they start getting into the business of lending um money to people as well which i think they do um <laughs> i i didn't learn too much about that so i can't really speak on it but back to the three main business units so they have alipay asset management and credit scores. So the asset management is more like a money market fund. Um, it's like a short-term GIC, if you think about it. But apparently, their interest rates are really great. Um, apparently, you get some annual interest rates of between 3 to 7%, which is amazing. So I don't know why. Yeah, it's just, I mean, why invest? You can just get 7% risk-free. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting um, that Alibaba just even has that kind of business. And they have a credit scoring business where apparently now, um, so it, it's using all the data that people would accumulate from using Alipay and the asset management service and also just everything on e-commerce as well because it's all integrated once again. And so they have their own credit rating system, which is apparently called the Sesame Credit, like, you know, Open Sesame um, from the that Alibaba and like the Thousand Thieves or something. <clears throat> but yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. It's kind of like a Square Venmo plus a bank plus a FICO um, if I used the U.S. companies. Um, as proxies to explain the business model so yeah it's a very significant business um to just practically it seems like it kind of owns the financial landscape for chinese people and apparently alipay has a 58 percent market share um compared to vpay which has a 34 percent market share and i think this these are the 2018 or 2017 data so it's a bit outdated but it kind of gives you an idea um but once again this market share could probably change rapidly with possibly new competitors or just how the dynamic unfolds because apparently before WeChat entered Alipay used to have an 80% market share so yeah WeChat did make a huge dent into Alipay's um, position which also I think talks about the dynamic situation of the Chinese tech ecosystem where things can happen rapidly and because there's so many people like this the environment is at such scale and also everything just seems quite underpenetrated that's why it was able to be you're able to actually see these massive shifts in market share um which I don't know, it's just it's just fascinating for me personally. And then finally, I'll talk about this company called Meituan Jianping. Um, so they're practically uh, it's a merger of two companies, Meituan and Jianping. And apparently, you can think of it as a super app that in, that combines OpenTable, Yelp, Uber, uh, Lime, uh, Uber Eats slash DoorDash, and Groupon, and I think a bunch of other services. It Apparently, Meituan Jianping is trying to become the Amazon of services. And so anything you can think of that's a service it wants to incorporate into its app. I think they also, I think Meituan Jianping is actually in travel as well. Because I heard that they, um, I think if my memory serves me correct, C-Trip was kind of the Chinese equivalent of TripAdvisor. And it was the bigger market shareholder. Um, it's like TripAdvisor slash Booking.com in China. And apparently they just lost their majority market share to Meituan Jianping when it decided to enter travel. So it seems like it, it kind of has like an Amazon-like um, reputation where, where wherever it goes, it tends to dominate the industry. So, yeah. I, but I think food uh, delivery is the majority of where the revenue comes from, if I'm not mistaken. I think that food is considered to be like 60% of the business. Um, I might be incorrect on that. So take that with a grain of salt. But Meituan Jianping apparently has about a 55% market share in food delivery. And the second player is Olama, which is E-L-E dot M-E. 
and Ulama is owned by Alibaba, which that they which they bought for nine point five billion dollars, and now it's kind of the second um, place player. I don't know how many market how much market share that they they have, but Meituan Jinping is considered the leader and kind of the dominant player uh, in the space. And the funny thing is that when Meituan and Jinping were separate companies, they were the kind of two players that are just continuously duking it out, kind of like a Lyft and Uber kind of story where you're just duking it out. Um, and Jinping, I believe, was actually invested. The Alibaba was an investor in Jinping, and Meituan was invest was backed by Tencent. So once again, it's a battle between Tencent and Alibaba. It seems that's a continuous story in China. It's constantly the battle between these two players. And what happened apparently is like there's a surprise merger between Meituan and Jinping, and Ten Tencent ended up taking over um, as kind of the continuous backer of Meituan Jinping, and Alibaba ended up divesting all their ownership. And in essence, they were kind of kicked out of the party. Same goes for the the founder and CEO of Jinping, who was apparently ousted very unceremoniously. It was kind of like a public tragedy in in many ways, where he was kind of seen crying with his. Uh, the founding team of Jinping, where he, when he kind of had to step down of the merged company, and the founder of Meituan kind of came out um, victorious. I forget his name, but it seems like he has a very interesting background too, where he had this kind of history of creating um, copycat companies. Like he, I think, created like a copycat to I think Facebook, and then Twitter, and then um, he wanted to copy Groupon when he created Meituan, and then it kind of grew into this massive company, and. What's interesting is how Dianping, um, when it started its own kind of food delivery company, it started out targeting um, tier three, tier tier four cities and trying to dominate kind of the outskirts. It reminds me a little bit of DoorDash, um, and they were in a continuous kind of, I guess, cash burning, fast growth race between Meituan and Dianping, where Meituan was more focused, I believe, on kind of more the tier one, tier two cities, and when it merged, um, you know, Meituan kind of stood out as the victor. I wonder if that's any kind of indication for um, future companies where if you have, for example, Kuaishou, who tends to dominate the tier 3, 4, or 5 cities, um, with Douyin dominating the tier 1, 2 cities, like in this kind of short-form live video app ecosystem where you know the, the app that tends to dominate the richer population will do better off. I don't know, but it's kind of an interesting thought experiment to have. But yeah, that's kind of the overview. Um, I thought... I thought this was interesting. It kind of gave me better, ins- gave me better insights into what companies exist in China and what they do and how their economy seems to function. In many ways, it just seems like they just have a massive duopoly uh, um, economy. And in many ways, like it makes the uh, antitrust hearings in the U.S. seem a little, um, I don't know, just I don't, I don't, I don't want to say unnecessary because I think it's highly necessary in many ways. Maybe Tencent and Alibaba needs more regulation in China, and they're just kind of the outliers are just left to do their own things. But who knows? They do have the CCP running them, so in many ways they probably are being regulated constantly. But I think there's a good transition to go into the antitrust politics um, essay by Stratechery and its writer Ben Thompson. So this was kind of a big news story, I think, for the last few weeks. So I don't want to constantly beat a dead horse um i've been listening to all kinds of podcasts talk about it and i think many were high level i didn't really f- take up much insights from them other than that i think the overwhelming insights i got from all the other podcasts that kind of touched upon the tech hearing in like a 10 20 minute spiel is that uh they were better prepared than last time but once again nothing really happened 
it's kind of the story and how I don't know people like to talk about who's evading what question, who started with what story, etc. I don't know how important that is. It's just I don't know. It's just talking about human behavior and how they're influenced by what people say. Um, so I didn't really care too much about the message the CEOs used. Like you know, Bezos used his humble background story and everyone had a pitch. Um, Tim Cook tried to stay silent and out of the way and apparently he succeeded and the people asking questions didn't seem to understand the app store as much and Tim Cook just ran it off and um, yeah some CEOs wanted to just kind of I guess run the clock out situation and so yeah that's kind of what the overall many podcasts seem to talk about but I felt this essay by um, Ben Thompson was much more comprehensive it gave me a better overview of what um, each kind of CEO and company was kind of standing for and also kind of an, an, an analysis on kind of what uh, Ben thinks um, is important and how each of the companies might have fared um, kind of as a quote-unquote resulting piece. And it's, it's his opinion that really I had um, put value to. So once again, check it out. It, the, the link is available. And I think even if you type strategy antitrust politics, you'll find it. So definitely give it a read. But the things I pulled out from it, um, once again, it's just a big question of why was Satya and Microsoft not in the antitrust hearings? Um, because Ben brings up a very good point about the point of antitrust hearings and um, just how in many cases, you know, they're used to kind of break up monopolies or kind of um, situations where there there are these kind of oligopolistic companies. And it just felt weird that Microsoft wasn't part of it. And as, as I read Ben's essay, it made me think about, well, okay, I think Google is clearly a monopoly in many things that it does. Like search, hands down, it's a monopoly. Um, and search is very crucial to advertising. Um, in If we think about social media as a whole, like Facebook could, I don't know if Facebook is a monopoly. I think they are in more of an oligopoly system with uh, other social media players. Um but if I think about like the dominant position, like you think about how generally um, the regulators have to take a closer look and maybe action when um, you have companies that own you know 70, 80% market share, like it makes me think about Microsoft. Like doesn't most of the com- don't most of the computers in the world run on Windows? And you know wouldn't you say most people actually use still the Microsoft suite of products? So I don't know. Um, maybe I'm just outdated. Maybe everyone's just so obsessed with Slack that that's all they use but it i still feel like microsoft is was like the gorilla that was missing in the room um but yeah um i think the idea of a constant question is this really a monopoly is interesting because it's true apple doesn't really play like they're not the dominant cell phone player they or smartphone player they are they usually are a minority player um in all the markets that they go to the difference is that they have a closed uh system compared to google which has a open system like a lot of this stuff is also open sourced, um, and in many ways, that it's interesting to hear about how that also makes them kind of possibly a bigger target than Apple. Where Apple, you know, they've had this whole drama um, in the tech world recently with the Hey app from Basecamp, and how I think they're also kind of going after some other apps like ClassPass on kind of the retrospective. I think revenues trying to get their thirty percent cut for having these apps on the App Store. Um, and it seems like, yeah, like Apple kind of has a chokehold on the App Store and they just do whatever they want with it. And in many ways, company developers and company have no choice because, you know, it's Apple's closed ecosystem. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to play by the rules. And like, I feel like Apple could have been um, 
at least from the essay, it gives me the impression that Apple kind of got away from more regulators like asking questions about it and just future regulations to them. But in, in, in some ways, the reason they might have been able to kind of, um, I don't know, push away attention is because they have this closed ecosystem. It's kind of like for a regulator's perspective, from a government's perspective, they are more probably comfortable with knowing companies that um, they think have more kind of knowable options. So, for example, with Google, like it's my thought, is because they're so open source and everything is just kind of freely available um, and everyone seems to use it, there could also be fears of that the unknown where you know, if you have an open source platform, who knows what what else could happen, what could be done compared to Apple, which seems to, seems to kind of control everything, censors everything. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, I think, from the point of regulators. The only time it's bad is if their individual parties are impacted negatively as the conservative party people seem to continuously rail about. Um, and I think they kind of railed to Facebook and Google about that where... They just feel like their own people are being unfairly, um, possibly kind of blocked by the platforms. But that thing aside, I think, yeah, the overwhelming, um, it seems, result is that Google is kind of most likely they will want to receive some kind of penalty, some kind of more further scrutiny um, because of their dominant position, but also just how kind of open all their platforms are. Um, Thompson also points out a very important thing about regulating aggregators. So the aggregators would be more so Facebook, Apple, and Google. Um, and I think another thing he points out that is interesting is just kind of public perception and how apparently like Bezos said Amazon is like the second most um, popular in the nation com- next to the military. So the populace in the U.S. at least um, are very favorable and they kind of think most highly of the military and then the next is amazon so in one ways if the government were to ever go after amazon then it's kind of like you're um going against the entire u.s population because everyone seems to like what amazon does for them because it's true like many all these tech companies have really created surpluses um in people's lives what's interesting is um, ben thompson includes a graph where it shows the how people are favorable and unfavorable to various companies and Facebook's products um, have the most amount of unfavorables. Not that it's materially like, you know, something like 50% plus, but I think some 25% of the survey um, responses, I think it was from, uh, I don't, it started with a V. I forget which site it was. I think it was a tech site. Um, but it, yeah, they did, they did a survey and I thought it was interesting how um, Google and YouTube, like they kind of ranked near the top. I think Amazon was ranking near the top, but Facebook and Instagram were ranking much lower to the bottom along with Twitter. And so it's it's just interesting to see how there is kind of a, um, a little more of a polarized view that people have with the Facebook products. Um, it, it seems like they are much more emotional much compared to like Amazon and Google products where they're more, they're more like tools um, and gadgets compared to Instagram and Facebook where those are more of a drug i think so much different um but i think it was also very interesting to think about that because if we think about a world where these tech companies are broken up um once again it'll create very interesting investment opportunities but at the same time it i think it changes the narrative like in many ways people don't invest in these large tech companies because of the market cap thing how can a trillion dollar company become like a 10 trillion dollar company right how much harder would that be but what if it was broken up and what do you have all these independent units now 
And once again, you kind of reset the clock and say, okay, now these are, you have like 10, $100 billion companies. Well, how quickly can those grow? So I think that makes it very interesting. Um, and if they're broken up, then it's also a big question. Well, aside from Apple, three of these companies are actually still controlled by their founders. So how would that work if you were to break up a company? Like, do you make founders not be controllers of specific business units? Um, this isn't really addressing the essay, but it's just kind of all the thoughts I started having from. And I think that's what was also really invaluable about a good essay is that it makes you think more about um, all the, I don't know, deeper questions underlying the message. But yeah, that's kind of it for today. Um, hope this is interesting. Hope this was valuable. Um, if you like it, yeah, like give give a, give a positive rating. Um, I don't know how ratings come out on Spotify, but subscribe or tell your friends about it. And if you're on iTunes, I think yeah, you can rate it and give a nice review and all that. All that's helpful. So once again, thanks for listening. And yeah, hope to have you back on. And I'll hopefully have another fun episode for you for the next one. Take care.